Welcome back to the Chris Williams Podcast Hour. Thank you to everyone that has listened to our first three shows. I can't begin to tell you how excited I am about your involvement. With that said, please, please, please be sure to follow us on social media. On IG and Twitter, you can find the Chris Williams Podcast Hour at the at sign, the Chris Will Pod. And on Facebook, it's simply the Chris Williams Podcast Hour. This week's podcast features multi-talented musician Mark Buckwald of the award-winning group Policy. I was fortunate to grow up with Mark and share some days with him as a Trojan at Annunciation Catholic School on the west side of Cleveland, and as an Eagle where we both attended St. Edward High School in Lakewood, Ohio. Now, you will soon hear his awesome story in the music and entertainment field, and believe me, folks, it is awesome. Now, talking to Mark made me think about some things. One memory in particular was an encounter with my seventh grade math and science teacher, who I will leave nameless, but it has probably been one of the biggest motivating factors in my life. So for those of you who don't know, my seventh grade CYO football team was one of the greatest grade school football teams ever assembled. We had great athletes. We had guys with heart, great coaches, cheerleaders, and a community which supported everything we did. Well, in 1981, we won the city championship. And we didn't just win. We buried our opponents, going undefeated and unscored upon for a full season. Let me repeat that. Our defense went a full season without giving up a score. That's zero points. So we won the West Side Championship. And I remember our parents and our boosters saying before the championship game, if we win the championship, kids can have the next day off from school. So we played the championship game against the champions from the east side of Cleveland. On a Sunday afternoon on the artificial turf at Baldwin Wallace College in Berea, Ohio. And we won. And we won big. Our parents, the boosters, threw the biggest party to this day I have ever seen. And they partied and partied throughout the night. Now it was amazing and very late when we all left the school and went home. So fast forward to the Monday. And as promised... Not one of the football players went to school the next day. Matter of factly, most ended up at my house lying around watching TV and eating whatever my mom was cooking. So Monday finally ends and Tuesday morning comes and we have to go to school. Now, the entire school was still excited and the football team was pumped up because we were the champions, undefeated and unscored upon. Smiles and high fives were being passed around, and I'm not sure how they did it at other schools, but before the opening bell at Annunciation, all the kids lined up outside by grade. You had first grade here, second grade here, third grade over there, and so on and so forth, all the way to the eighth grade. So believe me when I say not a kid was crying at school that day. It was all smiles and high fives and well wishes. 
The bell rang and we all filed in and everybody was still giddy, still happy. But then the most impactful event in my life happened, something I will never ever forget. So the seventh and eighth grade teachers allowed us to put our stuff away and then they called all of the seventh and eighth grade students into a classroom. And I remember it because it was so hot in that room and every seventh and eighth grade student was in there and I didn't even have a desk. I was standing up in the back of the room. And then they start with, you shouldn't miss school for any reason. Nothing is as important as your education. Now they were 100% right. And I got that. But then the seventh grade math and science teacher, it was her turn to speak. And she stood up and said something I will never, ever forget. She says, look around the room where you are and where you live. None of you can afford to miss a day of school because not one of you from this neighborhood will ever get out to do something with your lives. Not one of you will make it. So kudos to the Mark Buckwalls, the Derilios, the Harrigans, the Samarins, the Latex, the Bowles, the Hoyts, the Gregas, the Masons, the Sweeney's, the Grabskis, the Slenzaks, the Pollocks, the Barbarics, the Greckles, the Dodds, the Kovals, the Curcells, the McAwees, the Plesias, the Dullabins, the Pesos, the Schulers, the Andrews, and anyone else I respectfully did not mention who were able to advance and survive from the West 130th neighborhood. This is the Chris Williams Podcast Hour. I got really lucky with today's guest, a longtime friend, back from my parochial grade school days. Uh, he was an Annunciation Trojan as well as me, even though he went to Ascension, and another St. Ed's alumni, uh, a multi-instrumentalist, a producer, a DJ, a composer, the drum doctor, and entertainment business manager who has been nominated for several songwriting Best Song and Producer Awards. 
His full-length album, their debut album, Echo Chambers, made its debut on June 9th, 2020. I'll call him the wonder creator and friend. Folks, welcome Mark Buckwald of Policy. Mark, welcome. Uh, thank you. Glad to be here. I appreciate it. Yeah, we're excited. We're excited to have you because, you know, it's, it's not very often when we get to, you know, exchange words with a uh, a songwriter that of your caliber, award winner. Good. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad that we connected. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Let's start start with this. So you wear many hats. Like I said, uh, multi-instrumentalist. How many instruments do you actually play? Um, it's got to be somewhere around probably six or seven. Uh, I am a drummer first, so obviously the drums, uh, percussion, uh, guitar, bass, uh, piano, keyboards, uh, mandolin, and... Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, and uh, I think I can uh, – I, I was a saxophonist for a little bit. So uh, that's kind of my, uh, my, uh, my repertoire when it comes to instruments. Okay. It's, hey, it's, it's one more than I play, so that's awesome. <laughs> anyway, also you're a producer, a DJ. So, you know, I hear producer and DJ. I'm thinking DJ Khalid and Calvin Harris. Uh, you're a composer. And then tell me about the drum doctor. How did you get that name? Yeah, so drum doctoring is the uh, skill or talent of uh, basically doing maintenance or being called into studio session works to do drum tuning. Um, there is an actual drum doctor, a very famous one out of Los Angeles, and uh, he, he really is the drum doctor. Um, but uh, I kind of borrowed uh, the, the the title, um, and uh, because it's the same thing that he does. He you, you get called into studios to either uh, help set up other drummers' drum sets or tune them, uh, do maintenance on them, basically doctor them up to make them sound good in the studio. So <clears throat> that is a. Uh, uh, kind of the skill of what a drum doctor does or a drum tech, uh, but in this case, it's drum doctoring, and uh, it's really kind of what the skill is. Okay, and talk about some of the artists that you've actually had the opportunity to go in the studio and be the drum doctor for. Well, um, first and foremost, uh, we, we have a, a real nice facility here in, in Parma Heights with my Uncle Mike. Uh, Michael Zaremba from the Cleveland band back in the day. That's my family. And uh, we basically took my grandfather's house and turned it into a recording studio, Advanced Audio Design, LLC. And uh, so I'm pretty much the drum doctor uh, for that studio. I've drum doctored in Chicago uh, for a, uh, a band, uh, Deaf Children at Play, kind of back in the day. They had a big hit here in Cleveland called... Uh, Empty Promises. Uh, I basically started off as a tech for them and then became their primary drummer. Uh, so <clears throat> doctored for them, and I've, I've doctored all over, Nashville, uh, uh, New York City, uh, Toronto, Los Angeles, obviously. And uh, um, as far as uh, uh, getting in there with, with the artists, uh, I mean, there's just a whole catalog, just 
a lot of bands come through the studio, and my uncle Mike will call me and say, hey, can you come over here and doctor, doctor this kid up? He's really getting it ready for recording. Okay, okay. That's nice. That's, that's pretty cool. So I, I never would have known that there was a such thing as a drum doctor. So that, that's good information. So, and then finally, yeah. the entertainment business manager. So business yeah. management, how did you end up getting into that part of the music industry? Yeah, so, uh, you know, again, uh, a lot kind of stems out of my family, my mom and my uncles, and, uh, you know, they were in a show band for 25 years all over the U.S. and Canada, and I basically toured with them, and uh, I basically ran with the road crew, and that's really, you know, the stage was my playground. I wanted to set up the drums, and I wanted to lay down the uh, duct tape on the cords and hold the flashlights, and, you know, I loved it. That was my playground. But also, my stepfather was my mom's manager. So I got to, like, just sit in on business uh, meetings and really start to learn the music business when it comes to um, protecting an artist or things like trademarking, trademark, trademarking. I successfully did two trademarks, one for a previous band I was in, Dirt, and also for Policy, which I just secured. And usually when people think about trademarking, they have to hire a lawyer and they've got to go through uh, and spend a lot of money. Well, I just learned how to do it myself. So I have two successful trademarks, contracts, um, you know, when it comes to studio or it comes working with artists. There's just a plethora of things that have to happen on the back end. And you've got to learn the business. Music is a business and you've got to learn the business particularly as a manager and as an artist or producer, um, as I am. So, uh, for instance, on Echo Chambers, uh, I had to deal with uh, other artists uh, that I collaborated with, and we all had to sit down and we all had to figure out and negotiate uh, the performance contracts. Uh, what were they going to perform in the studio? Was I just going to pay them for that or or the songwriting, um, was I going to give them a uh, percentage? All of that has to be worked out before that record button is pushed. So I highly recommend anyone who's getting into the music industry to always keep in mind that you've got to understand the music business. And um, there's just all kinds of information out there. And really try to, le- try to, to do things yourself. Recently, I just launched my, first, my own label, uh, Maximus 24-7 Records, and I basically run my own label. And uh, to do that, I have to understand a lot of the business aspects of things, including, uh, you know, becoming an LLC and insurance and taxes and all that fun stuff. So, it's, uh, again, it's, it's a business that uh, even, in, even as an artist that you should get a good understanding of. Okay, man, you really have a lot of hats. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I just named a few, but wow, in detail, that's a lot of work, a lot of uh, attention to detail, if anything. Absolutely. So, congratulations and, and good luck. Thank you. So you brought Thank it. You. you brought it up. The Echo Chamber, your um, your your full length debut album. Uh, talk a little bit about that. I know we'll, I want to go into more detail a little later, but tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I I released my first uh, debut album uh, titled Echo Chambers uh, basically on June 9th. 
the first single came out in April. And this was kind of like a uh, concatenation of my whole career. Uh, like, again, I started very young. I was, I was basically born into music because of my family. And I never really kind of branched out and did my own project. I was always kind of like the drummer in certain projects and handling a lot of business and marketing and promotion. And kind of, uh, you know, last year around this time, around the summertime, uh, I've always been a fan of, uh, you know, EDM and trance that started in the late 90s when I got asked to do percussion uh, here in Cleveland. They called it kind of the glory days of West Sixth, and that's when really the EDM scene hit Cleveland. Someone had gone to New York or Chicago, and they saw this percussionist play with, these, with DJs, and they asked me to do it, and I was on board, and I did it for about four or five years. It was some of the best times of my life. But that's really when I kind of started, and that was in the late 90s. So I finally oh, wow. decided, yeah, I, I finally decided this past summer that I wanted to really do my own project. I wanted to kind of executive produce it, produce it, engineer it, and uh, kind of lead the whole thing. And uh, that's kind of how it started, and it's been, uh, it's been great. It's only been out a few months, and it's exceeded a lot of expectations. That's, that's even better. That's great news. That's great news. All right, so let's go back in time a little bit. And, you know, you've kind of touched on your background and your family, the music. So talk about, you know, where you grew up in Cleveland. I know you're a West Sider, but talk about where you grew up and what that was like. And just, you know, let people know more about Mark Buckwald. Sure. So, yeah, I was uh, born and raised in Cleveland. Um, I have an older brother that uh, graduated with you, but uh, we um, really just grew up in the music business. Like, again, my uncles, my family, my grandmother played, was a Broadway singer. My grandfather played second trombone for Frankie Carl. And as a child and as a kid growing up, all I wanted to do was be with the band. I never, I never sat in a classroom in fourth grade. Uh, I was on the road. They gave me a bunch of work. I went ahead and uh, went on the road with my mom and uh, came back off the road and handed in all my work. So unfortunately, uh, when I was 12 years old, I came home from school and I was on, the, I was on a phone call. My father was murdered um, back oh, in 1982. Man. And because of that, believe it or not, my brother and I got to go to St. Edward because of that. And I really, you know, St. Edward was just a, a, a savior. I mean, it was such a great experience. It's such a great school. So um, kind of went through the high school thing at St. Edward, and then two weeks out of high school, I had an opportunity to go to Los Angeles, California. I spent uh, seven years out there earning some wings, paying some dues. I got to study with some really cool players one-on-one, -on -one, including Greg Bissonette who went on to uh, play with David Lee Roth and is now the, uh, uh, the drummer for Ringo Starr. And uh, just spent some time out there. I had a, fortunately, I had a step-uncle who lived out in Simi Valley, which is where, like, the Ronald Reagan Library is. It's a suburb of uh, the valley in Hollywood. So I kind of got to live these two worlds and really kind of have a good foundation. And... Uh, 
spent, uh, again, seven years out there, came back in uh, around 94, and, uh, you know, basically had to rebuild my life and uh, took a couple years to kind of do that. And then I was ready to finally be a drummer again. And uh, fortunately, my musical background landed me a, a great opportunity in the IT field um, with a company that was trying to launch what Pandora Radio is today. And the rest was history. I've, I've been in the IT world for uh, since, since the year 2000 and, and all kinds of projects. So that's kind of, uh, kind of the, the, the timeline there. Okay. So, and, and I have two questions. So what was the first instrument that you picked up? And did you take music lessons or was it, like you said, you, you know, your family was all about music. Was it just pick up and they just like, all right, start playing and we'll show you the ropes from there? Uh, it was drums. I somehow kind of navigated to the drums because of my, the drummer for my mother, my, my mother and my uncle at the time, who is, you know, one of my biggest influences. His name is Tom Cantwell. He was from Cleveland. He moved to Chicago for a while. And uh, he's now in Nashville. And his son, as a matter of fact, is in a band that's doing pretty well out of Nashville. Um, but Tom Cantwell was, what was my first influence when it came to drumming. So it was drums first. I was, I was trained in drums. But again, because the stage was my playground, I would set up the drums. I would set up the bass rig. I would set up the guitar rig. I would clean the mm -hmm. piano keys. So I got to mess around with all these instruments. My mom had a horn section. So I, when I was little, I started playing the saxophone. All, of, all the <laughs> other instruments that I play are all self-learned, including the piano. But drums, I was trained. Okay. Wow. That's, that's impressive. That's impressive. All right. Now, and the other question I had. So, you know, you graduate from meds in 88, and then you said yeah. how many days after graduation did you go to California on your own? Yeah. Well, I think we graduated around June 12th. And it was, I had no time. Uh, June 28, 1988, I was on an a airplane to Los Angeles. I had gone out there because there was a family of musicians out of the Akron area, these two brothers, that I knew, and my, the families knew each other. And they were really young, and they were heading out. They were moving to Los Angeles with their mother. They had a connection out of Akron, and they were really tight with um, the individual who owned the sound company at the Akron Agora. And he also was tied into Warrant. And this was before anyone knew who Warrant was. They were, you know, this was the, the hair metal days. Uh, mm -hmm. And before Warrant really broke, the album was done. And, oh, his name was Jeff Hare. He was really tied into the Warrant guys. And, uh, so we went out there, and, and even before the record came out and all that, we were hanging out with those guys and, and getting our feet settled. And eventually, we kind of split off. The, the, the group that I was with out there, we were more towards a uh, more underground. I, was, I found myself getting into the surfer scene with um, some friends that I met, and it was, it was, you know, James Addiction, Red Hot Chili Peppers, I kind of left the, the hair band thing aside and uh, just kind of got into that kind of area. Stephen Perkins from Jane's Addiction, 
And uh, so, uh, but yeah, that's how, uh, that's how quickly I had to get out there. Was I had no time oh, for wow. summer. It was just get on a plane and jet out. Okay. All right. Well, since you, you were in a musical family, you knew music was what you wanted all along, and you get that opportunity. So you're getting on a plane going out to California. What fears did you face moving to the West Coast? I know when I first left home, I had a lot of fear, but I was more excited about, you know, what I might possibly experience. So that kind of took away some of the fears that I had. But what was it like for you? Well, I think it was it, it was a it wasn't that it wasn't that much of a difference. Again, my whole my whole childhood, I knew what it was like being on the road or being away from home. I mean, that was what our family did. We we were more away from home than we were home when we were on the road. And fortunately, I had some family out there. Again, I had a step uncle, and that really gave me a little bit of a foundation out there outside of the San Fernando Valley, outside of Hollywood. I got to experience Simi Valley, which is just a beautiful area. And it's where you can find people that were born and raised there and have families there and raise families there, rather than going into Hollywood where you'll find everybody from around the country, right? So... Mm -hmm. Uh, it was a good foundation. I did, I will be honest, I did get a little homesick at the time because, again, you're rebuilding your life. You know, it's, this is a little different than going to college. This was kind of like, you know, thrown to the wolves of Los Angeles. But, again, I, I had a good foundation. I had the other guys there and, you know, just started to, to go from there. Um, our first show out there was on the Sunset Strip, opening for Warrants. And it was uh, a really good experience. There, there was some up and ups and downs, but those memories and those those moments that I got to, to share, you know, uh, working with Greg Bissonette, what we would do is we would we would text for him when he was playing around town, and in return, uh, we would go to his house and he would give us drum lessons. and And that's when I started to learn about what it's like to be one of the most you know more respected drummers in Los Angeles. Greg Bissonette is the guy that they call, you know, uh, it's no secret that a lot of young players and a lot young bands sometimes can't hack it in the studio. For some reason, when they hit that record button, <clears throat> they just can't do it. So they got to bring in seasoned guys, guys that can handle the studio. And, and those are the session players. And that's when I really started to, to, to learn and, and, and want to be a session player as well as being a live player. Okay. All right. That's good. So you, you talk about some of your experiences, the highs and lows. Talk about your California experiences. Share some of your highs and lows, some of the people you met, and please, I'm going to put you on the spot. you got to give us a good story of, of something that happened when you were out there. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I guess when I talk about highs and lows, there were, again, you know, there was a little bit of homesick going on, you know, those those guys moved out there. I always felt like a visitor. Um, so <clears throat> there certainly was a lot more highs than lows, but just the lows of being young. Again, I was only 18 when I went out there, and maybe relationships with, uh, with uh, you know, girls at the time or whatever. So those are kind of the lows I, I talk about. The highs always outweigh the lows, and, <clears throat> you know, the, the weather, the beach, 
the, the views. Um, and, and something that kind of interesting that happened to me was I eventually got into the movie business really by accident. The story behind this was is we at some point, because you hear all about, I mean, it's, it's the, that's, where the, that's where the movie business is, right? So everybody's trying to be an actor and an actress. I never really, I was a musician, and, and I never really kind of wanted to be in TV, but you, you kind of work, you, you can find work in it. I mean, I worked as an extra for a while, and then I ended up going on this audition, and I remember the line they gave us was, they don't make it easy, do they? That's what we had to say. I go in there, <laughs> there's a lady sitting at this desk, she had to be 50 yards away, I thought I nailed it. I say the line. They don't make, uh, you know, they don't make it easy, do they? And she just doesn't even look up and says, next. And it didn't oh, wow. really occur to me until years later why she didn't look up at me. This was for a Snickers commercial. She purposely had her head down because she wanted somebody to raise her head up. It was a commercial. What does a commercial do? A commercial gets your attention. Yeah, grab so your attention. Just like, yeah. I just said it like a normal person. I'll never forget that lesson. Years later, I had a person who went to this place, and she did this thing, and the next thing I know, she's going to be in commercials. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do this again. I ended up going in and doing this, what they, they call them sides, these little pieces of the commercial or the script. I, I did this Doritos commercial, you should never touch a, a, a casting director, but I kind of blew, blew her away. She says, hold on a minute, and she brings this other gentleman in. This guy's name was Damon Hall, and he was a legit, what they call a personal manager. And he goes, you've got to come with me. The next thing I know, I end up moving in with this guy in Burbank and becoming his partner, and what we do is at 12 o'clock, he gets sides, sent to his mailbox. These are all of the role, roles that are coming out for the next day. We go get these sides at, at midnight. We get all of our he, – he, 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 he managed children, and we're like, oh, they need a nerd kid here. They need a, a pretty girl here. And he would, he, he would tell me, just go to Warner Brothers, go to uh, NBC, tell them you're with me. Next thing I know, I'm walking right onto these lots, going right to the casting directors. They're the ones that call the shot, and I'm saying, here, here's our submissions for the day. And then they would go, hey, you know, there's this role coming up. Do you want to audition for it? So then I started to audition, and then boom. I ended up landing a, a couple gigs. I, I was on Power Rangers, some speaking, non-speaking, the original 90210, Melrose Place, Babylon 5, I think, the sci-fi. And uh, so I, I had some fun with it, but I – it was never something that I really sought out to be. I, you know, I'm a musician, right? I'm, I'm taught to be myself. Acting is a very, very unique situation because you've got to, you've got to be other people, right? It, it was a very, very strange experience for me, to be honest, but I had fun <laughs> with it. So that's kind of what happened out there. I did that for like the last couple of years. And, and again, in, in 94, I was ready to uh, come back to the Midwest, Okay. And what's the best role that you landed, in your opinion? The best, the best role I landed was, was Power Rangers. Um, and at the time, Power Rangers was watched by 70 million kids. This was, a, this was around 93. And I got to play this bully. And I think the episode is called The Ninja Encounter. 
there were there were two or there were three there were three um, uh, what do they call it? There was the first part, three parts, and it was one of those parts, and it was a very important part because they were finally getting rid of the original cast because they were upset. This is a true story. The original cast of Power Rangers, one of the biggest shows in Hollywood, the cast was getting ready to leave because it was a non-union show. So Amy Jo oh Johnson, all of those cast members were not getting any monies when it came to the merchandise, when it came to anything outside of that. So they were, they were bugging out. So these episodes were targeted towards unveiling who was going to be the new cast of the Power Rangers. And I played this bully who kind of has this crew, and uh, we kind of have this scene. Uh, we have a few scenes, but at the end of it, it's kind of like the same gist of the Karate Kid. We end up having this competition, and they end up beating us, and then they take their masks off. And they end up being the next, um, the next crew or cast of the of the original Power Rangers, leaving the original crew behind because they were leaving because it was non-union. Wow, that's the backstory. Wow, that. that is that's insane. Uh, that's a lot of money left on the table too. So it is, you know, because Amy Jo Johnson, she was the pink one, right? They had all the colors. She was the pink one, the original cast. And they were all kind of like, you know, there's big legalities to it, but it was a non-union show. Um, and that was another learning lesson for me when it came to business, not just music, but entertainment in general, is learning about the, 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 the TV and, and movie business. I had never signed with any agent. I had two agents, but I never signed the contract. Jamon told me, don't sign. We'll do what's called floating. So you don't sign with them. They just pick you up, and, and you have two agents working for you. So there was a lot of things to learn when it came to that. So that's why I say uh, it's really entertainment, entertainment business consultation okay. that I can give, not just music but also TV and movie. Okay. Well, it sounds like you have a, a wealth of knowledge in that area. So, yeah. So young, many young people listening, you definitely have to check out Mark Buckwall. If uh, if you need help in in the uh, entertainment industry, so that's absolutely good. that's really good. So, all right. So I have to ask this: California versus Ohio, pros cons. You know, what, what do you like better? I know you're back at Cleveland, so obviously there's something about Cleveland, Ohio that draws you back. So, what are the pros and cons about both? Yeah, you know that's a really good question. Again, you know, I, I I'll never. I do not regret making that move to go to Los Angeles. Um, you know, there, there are things that will, I will always remember and take with me. And, again, I had to pay some dues and earn some wings out there. Um, and, you know, I, I'll never forget the sights of, of driving over the hills and seeing, you know, the beautiful city landscape or going to the, to the beaches and uh, – I mean, I think I tried surfing once. I was not good at it. But uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> the thing, the thing you got to know about Los Angeles is it's a hustle. It's a very, it's, it's a hustle town, right? There are a lot of people there who are very serious about making a career. There's a lot of people there that aren't serious, and and have, you know, most, there's a high percentage of them are those the ones that actually 
uh, maybe do something. There's a lot of people that come from other places. Now, Simi Valley was, was key to, to me because, again, it was like having some family. I met a, my friends. Uh, all my friends are really from Simi Valley more than anywhere else. As a matter of fact, I was slated to go there in January for the, uh, one of the award ceremonies, but they, they canceled it due to COVID. Mm-hmm. Now, okay. when you're talking about California to Ohio, there's no question that, to me, because I'm born and bred Cleveland, there's something about the warmth of the Midwest. I remember feeling that when I came home about how just warm and how nice and how pleasant people were from the Midwest. And, and I'm not afraid to say it, you know. And I told myself, I will only go back to L.A. if there was a good reason to go back. I'm not going back there to move ever again. I'll, I will not do that. But I'll go back there, like I said, in, in, if I was going back in January for the, for the award ceremony, or I plan on going there to meet, see some friends, and then there was a, a buddy of mine, we wanted to go up to Coachella, and then I wanted to jet up to, uh, to uh, see Al Capitan up there in Yosemite. So there, that trip was booked in April, but I was going to go in January. But there's no question that there's something about the Midwest. There's something – I mean, I lived in California for those years, and I tell you, I had no idea what was happening back here from a, a sports point of view. I just watched that Michael Jordan uh, series, and I was completely oblivious to the fact that, you know, Michael Jordan hit that shot against the Cavaliers in, wow. what, 91? <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah. When you go out there, you're, that's, it's not really a sports town when you're not from there. So I had no idea what was going on sports-wise. And, and of course, I'm a big sports fan, Indians, Cavs, Browns. It's just, it's very, right. very strange. But there's no question, Midwest. Okay. Okay. All <laughs> right. Well, well, let's move forward to your uh, professional career. You're into electro-pop. So for fans who aren't familiar with it, give us a brief description about it and how you actually got into it. Yeah. So electro-pop is the best way that I can – because, again, you're, you're categorizing, right? You're cat, you, have to, you have to categorize. As much, peop, as much as you hear people like, you can't categorize my music, well, you have to. It's the business. Electro-pop really kind of, you know, Billy Ellis is considered electro-pop. And okay. it's, it's really hard for me to kind of nail down exactly what Echo Chambers is, but it certainly has those elements of electro-pop electronic it's really it's really an electronic album but there is a lot of manual performances on it right so um there's there's even though there's programming and drum beats and drum loops there's still live drums that were performed by me the piano and all of the all the keyboards that's all live performance so it is electronic it's also pop and it, you just kind of mix it into electro-pop. But it does have elements of alt, alternative, EDM, ambient, chill, and dance. But for the most part, uh, when you've, you've got to categorize it as electro-pop or electronic pop. 
Okay. Okay. All right. So, so you talk about playing all the instruments and everything. Talk about the debut album and the the process to create that. How long did it can did it take to complete it? And then share the process from start to finish because it, it sounds like it's. I, I, I mean, I can't even imagine, you know, having to write the songs and play an instrument and loop that together. What is what is that like? Share that process. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll try and kind of condense this because you're, you're right, it is a lot. I had actually, again, started thinking about this over last summer. And, but, again, I'm going all the way back to where I first got introduced to EDM or dance music uh, back in, in, in the late 90s. But this is really kind of, again, a concatenation of my whole career. So I basically – the first thing I, I there's two studios we have I have I find I have a what they call a bed studio here in my house policy palace I call it but we also have the main studio over at my uncle's where right my grandfather's which my uncle's still in and that's advanced audio design so the first thing I had to do was build my bed studio and I had to learn software right um, so that took about a month to get my little bed studio up here and learn the software. I use Ableton is what I decided to use because it came with one of the keyboards that I bought. And I remember Ableton <laughs> just sat on my desk for the longest time. It gave me anxiety. It was like, oh, my God, i got to learn Ableton before I get started. And one day I was like, hey, if I'm going to do this, I better start learning Ableton, which is really the, the software. So once I got that up, I just started to, to, just started to track and the process, again, it just started to write itself. There's no other way that I can do it. Pieces just kind of fit in place. I had the bed studio. I had learned the software. I knew once all the bed tracks were done, I was going over to Advanced Audio Design to finish the record, and then we sent it down to Nashville for mastering. But the process was just start writing, just start putting ideas down, and that was the music. And I remember it kind of went like this. I started to write a song on Monday. I went through the week. And then on Friday, it was when I, if, if it was good enough for me to record, I started to record it. And I remember then to record it over the weekend, give my ears a rest, wake up on Monday, listen to it back in playback. And if I, if I, and the, 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 if it was going to stay or not, if we were going to go to print with it, if it was going to go to the album, I had to love it. And I basically oh, wow. did that. Yeah, I basically did that for three months. And it was just like that. So I basically did maybe 14 tracks. There's 10 tracks on the record because some of them, you know, they don't, they don't make the cut. And that's really how mm -hmm. the process went. Now, what also happened is, is I know when – you know, I know when I'm not good at something. I'm not necessarily a lyricist. I'm not necessarily a vocalist. So I knew that I had to start reaching out to some collaborators, and that's what I did. I ended up writing some lyrics on the record. I ended up doing some vocals, but very small pieces of it. So I started reaching out to other singers and basically did collaborations with five amazing, talented vocalists that are on the record, and um, they all, and that, this was the scary part. This was the scary part. 
I didn't know what they were going to bring me until we were ready to record. That's a very scary situation. They call that top Yeah. So I give them, say, hey, I've got a piece of music. I want to collaborate with you. You are going to do the top line, which means you're going to do the lyric, you're going to do the vocal melody, and you're going to record it. Now, not in every case. I remember, so there's a platform that I use called SoundBetter, which I can re- you can reach out to people who are wanting recorded work. And I ended up reaching out to this Australian artist, and we kind of bounced things back and forth. So I had a good idea of what she was going to do. But some of the other ones, I had no idea what they were going to do until they got into the studio. And fortunately, every track that has a collaboration with a vocalist, which is five tracks on the record, I loved everything they did. I was blown away by everything that they did. And it was so satisfying because I don't know what I would do in that situation if I didn't like it, right? I think that would kind of cause, you know, it it could cause some issues. But thankfully, they did an amazing job and all of them. So once that got, well, once I was done with the beds and we had the singers lined up, we went over to Advanced and that's where we finished it. We recorded the vocals, then me and Uncle Mike um, mixed it. And then once it was all mixed, then I had to send them down to um, Nashville. So Tommy Wiggins, who's from Cleveland, he's down in Nashville now, he did the mastering. And uh, once it was mastered, it comes back, and then boom. Once it's mastered, it's basically done, and then you've got to change hats. And then I go into marketing and promotion, and that's what I continue to do. So – there is a lot that goes into it because I am the executive producer. And usually what that means is I'm the money guy. And uh, I'm also the producer, the engineer, and everything else that goes with it. So, but it was, it's been a great, great journey and process. And I give a lot of credit to everybody, not just me. And it's, it's exceeded expectations. Um, and, and I love it. I listen to it every day as a fan. And uh, believe okay. it or not, I have to continue as marketing and promotion, and uh, I'm starting to uh, think about uh, getting some new beds down for some new material. So, Oh, wow. Wow. Jump right yeah. into it. I like that. Yeah. So you sent me yeah. two songs. Yeah, you yep. sent me two songs, Reality and The Oracle. Now, Reality, I love the rhythm and the beat. The violin is amazing. So. Yep. Now, you talked about um, – so how do you even come up with creating a song like Reality? You know, it, it's what, – what inspired it? Where do you even start with creating a song? That's uh, <clears throat> such a good question when it comes to this song. So this one is very interesting because it was – so – Going into this record, I'm a drummer first. So the first thing I wanted to do was I wanted to say I want to bring these type of rhythms in. If you listen to this album, there are specific rhythms to each song, even though a lot of these tracks are what they call four on the floor, right? Right? And that's okay. But the other ones are not. There's certain rhythms on there. So reality is interesting because it is four on the floor. But when you listen to the keyboards, it's actually in seven. So when I started this song, it was the first idea that I wanted to record. 
and I spent weeks trying to figure out how am I going to do a four on the floor so everybody can feel it as well as doing what they call an odd time, right? Odd timing is something that you learn as a drummer, right? I'm a drummer first. And mm -hmm. basically what I did is I ended up scrapping it, and then it came down to I had all the other nine songs done, and I'm like, I've got to, I've got to put this idea on tape. How am I going to do basically a dance track with an odd time? And all of a sudden, it just came to me. So again, reality is four on the floor, but when you listen to the keyboard and the bass, it's in seven. If you count it, it'll be seven over four. And it ended up working. And then Tina came in, and she did such an amazing – and I added the percussion. So she did such an amazing job on this song, and it really kind of rose to the top. And uh, – so that was kind of the idea, not just for reality, but every one of those songs really starts with a rhythm. There's, there's what they call polyrhythms, which is like a 7-4 a or a 3-4. So as a drummer, that's how it starts. You kind of ask, what's your, in, in, what's your inspiration? How does it start? For me, it started with rhythms first. And then I had a bunch of ideas that I had on the keyboard or the piano and I just transferred that over and then just started laying tracks. And uh, it, it just, it's like, again, you find yourself as an artist in this place that the song basically just wrote itself. It just wrote itself. And that was the easy part. I didn't have the hard part. Tina and Amy Jo and Anastasia and Claire and um, uh, Kelsey, all the collaborators, they had really the hard part, right? Although I did the lyrics for the second track, Artifact, but in any case, they really had the hard part. They had to do the singing. I didn't. <laughs> so that's kind of how things get inspired. And I, I would pull inspiration from very different areas. Like, I certainly, I know one thing is when you're going to, if you're an artist and you want to record a record, please set out to just be yourself. I didn't want to sound like anyone else. Why, why would you want to sound like anyone? Please just be yourself and go with it. But you can pull certain inspirations from your favorite artist. I'm a big Dead Mouse fan. He's one of my favorites. So if, you, if there was anything I was going to pull from Dead Mouse, it would be something like the tempo. So one of, one of my favorite tracks from Dead Mouse is Sophie Needs a Ladder. And it's okay for me to write a song that's the same tempo. I'm not going to be taking anything else from it, but I can borrow the tempo. And, um, okay. you know, so you, that, you pull inspiration from certain areas, and then the song just starts writing itself. Okay. That's awesome. So, yeah. and this is my musical ignorance, so forgive me if I am completely off base. But I, I heard you know, the rhythm and reality, and I'm thinking, you know, Cuban music, you know, Afro beat, and I'm like, ah, oh, I'm, I'm feeling that. So I don't know if, if you pulled from that, but that's, that's where it touched me. That, that's what I was first thinking when I heard reality. And it may yeah, be, and you know. Of, you, sure, sure. And, and that's because of the, the percussion. Again, what was yes. what some of my, going back to the day, I was the percussionist for those EDM DJs, 
right? So the inspiration right. comes in with reality is we've got a four on the floor. We've got an odd time. I'm going to put some percussion on it. And then Tina got in there and she did the vocals. And then we were like, she plays violin. Boom. Tina did the violin oh. on it as well. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's where that came. That, I'm telling you, that song is amazing. Folks, if you haven't heard it, you have to listen to Reality on um, his, his album. It, that song is amazing to me. And then or, the, the Oracle, that's another very catchy tune, another great yeah. voice on there. You know, and yes. I'm, I'm thinking, I, and all I keep hearing is, you know, the for better or for worse, it's inescapable. And I'm like, oh, this is, I like this. I like this. Yeah, so, so. the Oracle is has a, another unique story as well. Anastasia Monroe, she's also the lead singer for the Dream Masons. Uh, out of uh, the east side, or, or is it the west side, from kind of Lorraine, Illyria. And I actually sent an ad out, and she answered it. And, again, this was where I kind of had the song done. It's a unique polyrhythm, right? So that one is not a four on the floor. That's a unique polyrhythm. This particular track was the most, quote, unquote, process. You hear a lot of stuff going on there. And again, the song just kind of wrote itself. People ask me, like, what am I doing in that song? And I can't really explain. I went to this place that the only way that I can explain what I did on that track to get it down and go back to the bed tracks and show, you know, this is what I did. This is, the, this is how I got here. This is the, the sound effects that I used. I absolutely love that track. And Anastasia came into the studio and absolutely nailed it and uh, just love it. As a matter of fact, I'm, I just launched a huge promo package on the Oracle that will be starting uh, in, in about a week or so. So okay. uh, still, to this, me and Anastasia still stay in touch. We're actually going to be doing a live performance, an acoustic version of the Oracle uh, coming up at the end of the month. And... Uh, and I think even you and I talked about maybe doing a performance. That's what me and Anastasia will do. We'll do the Oracle. It'll be done acoustically. Oh, man, I'm excited about that. I, you don't understand. I'm really excited about that. I'm glad you told me about that. Hopefully, you know, we can get together and, you know, somehow we can share that together. That, that'll sure. be a great experience. That's awesome. That is awesome. So how did you come up with the name Policy? You know, and how has it grown, and where do you want it to go? Yeah, okay. So this is, a, again, an, another great story. So when I started doing – I actually have policy. I have a chest – I have a tattoo. I have a chest plate of it. Um, so, I, so I started doing the percussion with the DJs at down on West 6. When West 6, 6 was blowing up, there were the clubs, the Spy Bar and Wish, and I became the house percussionist for all of these clubs and all of the DJs had names, right? They were DJ Emos or DJ this, DJ that, and I had no name. I just was like, I'm the percussionist. So I remember one night we were sitting, um, we were sitting with some friends, and they were just like, man, that's really cool what you do. You know, you get up there and you, you, you're like just laying down because it, it, it's a skill. You can't just get up there and solo over these, DJs, you really just kind of fly in under it, grab a pattern, mm -hmm. and enhance it, right? And I had dancers, and we had pyro. At the height of it, 
I had two dancers and pyro. The place was jam-packed. And I remember the, the guy, the, a friend of mine said, man, when you do that, it, it's, it's, it's like the policy. And everyone's just kind of like, oh. I know. they're like, boom, that's it. So that's how I got the name policy. And it's just, uh, it just stuck with me. And I ended up going on a trip down to Florida and uh, Pink's, uh, husband, I think his name's Hart, the, the motocross guy, they have a tattoo mm-hmm. uh, uh, shop down there, and I ended up getting policy tattooed on my chest. Oh, wow. Wow, that is yeah. pretty cool. You, so you talk about having the guts to get up there and play over a DJ's track. So I lived in New York for about five years, and I used to go to this place in Brooklyn. It was called Bembe. And they would literally, they would have, you know, sometimes they'd have a little house band, sometimes they'd have the DJ playing, but they always had either a set of bongos or drums sitting up front. And people would literally just go up there and play over the music. And I got drunk one night, and I decided I could play the bongos. You know, I, hey, I, I feel the rhythm. I'm, I'm feeling good. Man, I, I got tossed out of that place. I was so bad. So I can't imagine what it's like just getting up there and playing solo. And then I see you in the Guitar Center, and you, you won an award or something like that. Like, Guitar Center is one of my favorite places. I am, I am a geek about uh, equipment, video equipment, um, you know, the audio equipment. So I go into Guitar Center all the time, and I see guys. They'll just pick up guitars and just start playing for a group of people. And I see you playing the drums, and I'm like, this dude has some balls. I'm sorry. Mark Buckwald has some balls just to go up there and play. And I know it's something that, you know, you've been doing all your life, but it's like an athlete. You don't – everybody just doesn't perform in front of people. You talked about some guys can go in the studio and, you know, yeah. and they might, when they hit that butt, that's it's called choking. And, that, like, I would yeah. choke. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah, kudos. choking or teeth start to shake. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, so I, that, I mean, the, that's big. Yeah, I won a drum contest, the big Guitar Center drum contest. I didn't win the whole thing, but I won the city of Cleveland. And I worked hard for that. The first one I ever did was in, was in 88 on Hollywood Boulevard, the original Guitar Center. And that's the first oh, one wow. I did. And then I do it for years. And then I started doing it again. Because of this, drum contests make you work. They make you go downstairs and get your ass on the drums and practice. It is nothing but a positive thing. And even someone like me who's been playing for a long time, drum contests were the one thing that always made me nervous because you want to do very well. And you put a lot of time and effort and preparation into this. And I failed, 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 failed many times. And when you fail, you learn, right? Fail fast. Mm -hmm. Get in there and fail. And uh, finally, I put this – I remember I worked hard on that. It was a 2014. It was three minutes, but it had like 12 parts to it. And uh, you put a little bit of uh, what they call wow factor to it. And I ended up getting all the way through and winning the city. And that was great. I got a bunch of prizes, and it was super cool. Then, fortunately for me, the regionals were in Cleveland. They had the regionals in other cities. This particular year, they had the regionals right in Cleveland at the North Olmstead store. And there were 12 players. 
and I ended up kind of doing, I think, landing fourth. There was a guy, what we didn't know was you could have semi-pro players in the contest. And when I mean semi-pro, those are guys that are playing 150, 200 times a year, really guys that really got their chops together. And there was a guy that okay. came in from New York City, and he just he, he blew everybody away. He deserved to win, there's no question. He was great. I think I came in fourth on that, and then he ended up, if you won that, then you end up going to New York City. Then that oh, was wow. the last year of it. They don't have it anymore. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, they don't That's have crazy. it anymore. But, again, I always encourage players to do contests because a lot of people are like, well, I'm not going to mix music with contests. That just doesn't mix. Music is conceptual. Contests are like performance. It's, it's not the same, but it is. It is when it comes to a drummer because you've got to keep your chops up. You've got to keep your time up. You've got to keep your chops up. And, again, it forces you to go downstairs to the practice room, right? Even for someone like me who's been playing for so long, just like Michael Jordan, you've got to find inspiration. You've got to find reasons to go downstairs and practice, even if you have to make okay. it up, you know. So drum contests yeah. do that. Make, and I have my songs, as you can see, these are all contests, right? It's kind of the same concept. If you've got material, push them to those contests because you get a lot of reaction, you, and, and, it's, and it could be good, it could be bad, but that's all good. You just take the good and you learn from the bad. So doing contests, whether it's for skill or it's for your material, is nothing but a positive thing. Nothing like a focus group, right? <laughs> nice. Right. Nice. That, that's good. That's really good. So, you know, in, in today's climate, COVID, big thing, uh, causing delays, on a lot of things. How has it affected you? Yeah, first let me say, you know, my heart goes out to all those people who have been, you know, substantially affected. There's no question. This is a really unique time, and COVID certainly has put a strain on a lot of families. Um, I, I just happen to be very blessed. Uh, I work in the IT field. So this, this idea of working from home, we've already, we've already done that. We've been doing that. I've been working from home for years. Not every day, but it, you know, once, twice a week. So that was something that an IT department in the field of computers and IT, a lot of those people do that anyways. So that was very low mm -hmm. impact. Um, it also frees up some time, right? I don't have to spend an hour a day in traffic. There's just a lot of pros and cons to it. Um, right. I do miss going into the office and, and being, you know, doing the socializing thing, but it has allowed me to kind of like really kind of focus in. So this past year I did a lot of things, not just the album, but dealing with the COVID thing, the album, I enjoy working on my house. I, I, I did a whole facelift, basically, on my, on my backyard, painting and wow. staining and carpeting and all kinds of stuff. So the COVID thing to me has 
been somewhat of a positive thing. Now, I don't think I ever got it, and I don't, I don't think I ever gave it to anybody, but it was really a low impact for me and pretty much my family. And I just, all I can say is that it, 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 was, it was kind of a blessing. And I know people out there are having a much harder time than, than I have, but it has, it was just, it's just kind of weird. It had freed up some time of, of really kind of focusing in and going, let, let me do my eight, nine, ten hours at my day job. I do have a day job that I love. And, and then let me, let me stay home, not go to the bars, not go boozing, not, and let me, I'm stuck at home anyways, let me, let me work this album and let me work on this house. And I just, it's amazing to me to look back to see what, what, I, what I got done. So, um, uh, it's, you know, in, in my house here is, is a house where we, we gather the family. I just had a, I think I did four family parties plus friends parties. I got a pool and a deck and all that. And I just had family okay. over yesterday. So I did Father's Day, Memorial Day, Fourth uh, of July, and Labor Day. And usually I only do Father's Day here. So... It was oh, a great wow. opportunity wow. to get the family together, and they're all very supportive of me and the record. And so the COVID thing is, is it just, it's, all I can say is that overall it's been low impact. Okay. All right. That's, you know, that's good for you. Like you said, there's so many people affected by it, and our hearts go out to them. So lucky mm-hmm. for you and your family. So that that's great. Be sure to tell yeah. everyone I said hello if they remember me, but tell them I said hello. Sure. And then, uh, okay. yeah, you know, again, congrats on everything and good luck. And I hope you win all the awards that you've been nominated for um, this year and beyond. And by the way, I wear an extra large in T-shirts, I'm just saying. <laughs> so I, it would, that policy shirt would look good on me. But, uh, yeah, for sure, for sure, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'll just, uh, so. yeah, we'll talk offline, and, and I'll get you everything you need. All right, I appreciate it. And then before we go, how can everyone follow Policy and Mark Buckwald? With, what's your websites and your social media? Yeah, so I have an official website, and that's www.policymusic.net. And that has everything, policy, music, you can get downloads, videos, pictures, all the press, all the awards. I got a blog that I'm starting out there. And that has all the um, navigation to Facebook, Amazon, um, uh, Instagram, Spotify. Spotify is really kind of the place where you can get out there and, 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 and listen to the record. Um, it's out on iTunes, it's out on Google Play, it's out on SoundCloud. Uh, you can buy the record. Um, the video for reality is out on YouTube. You can just kind of Google me. Um, there's, there, there is, uh, uh, you should be able to find me on all that stuff. So again, you can go straight to policymusic.net, and from there you can get to everywhere else you need to go. Okay, awesome. Well, Mark, thank you once again for coming on the Chris Williams Podcast Hour, and best of luck to you in policy. And I look forward to working with you and, you know, on the video side so we can get that up on our YouTube. But thanks again for, you know, taking the time. 
and uh, we appreciate you. And, of course, you know, all our thoughts are with you, and we hope, you know, everything goes positively because you've been on the Chris Williams Podcast Hour, and we just want the best for you. All right? Well, I appreciate that. It's been great, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much.